Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Rob Fitzpatrick, welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Philip. So, Rob, I have some inside information on your life, and I think you can help me. <laughs> Things are out of balance for me. I need, I think, a healthy addiction to PC gaming. I have the computer. <laughs> I have a Windows computer. It's got a 12-core processor, nice graphics card. Um, where do I start? How do I become healthily or unhealthily addicted to PC gaming? Because I've tried and I haven't <laughs> succeeded. Like, I think I downloaded Microsoft Flight Simulator. Didn't really go anywhere with that. That's a, that's a pretty intense place to begin, you know? That's a, that's a real rabbit hole for, for enthusiasts. Oh, is that the problem? I mean, I, I'm starting at the wrong level? <laughs> I, I, I can tell you what I like, and, I, and this is also based off my weakness. So there, there's some games that I get sucked into and I spend, uh, you know, a thousand hours on and I sort of lose my life to them. So an example of that recently would be Path of Exile, which okay. is sort of like a, a modernized, super polished, incredible version of Diablo. But I, I kind of had to stop playing those because they have too much, uh, too much pull over me. And what I like now is games like chess, but kind of uh, you know played with, modernized, uh, with a bit more like different stuff going on. So there's this category called roguelikes where you start, you play for some, usually 30 minutes, an hour, and then you lose and you always lose because the way they're built is like, it's this escalating exponential difficulty that you simply cannot keep up with. So you lose and then you start over. You don't get to continue from there and you try again, you try to do better. And I really like that because I like to spend an hour, have an experience like a movie, do my best, you know, deal with the unique challenges and situations. And then it's like, okay, it's over. And, and, and since it's ended, I don't feel like I have to keep going hour after hour after hour. So that's what fits into my life right now. And the one I'm enjoying the most at the moment is called Monster Train. And it's just like, you know, get these little critters to their uh, destination. <laughs> okay. All right. So what is so addictive about Path of Exile? So the way I like to play games is that if you make a mistake, all of your progress is deleted and you start from scratch. Because okay. if the game doesn't have stakes, I don't care about it. And, and I find I'm like, you know, I, I don't want a game that I'm like half playing while I'm also half watching Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want my consequences to matter, mm. like a, you know, a mini safe proxy for life. Mm -hmm. And in Path of Exile, uh, I, I would often, you know, the phone rings, I look away for two seconds and I lose 40 hours of progress. And I, I like that because I like to feel that, you know, there, there, there's consequences, right? It's like the, the game to me is, can I maintain focus and high performance for an extended period of time? And I find that compelling. And that it's rare that a game allows for that sort of playing style. Huh. So this is a game that really suits that play style. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Because a lot of games, um, I mean, this is true as well. If you look at like business risk or career risk, it, it's like, is the danger or the risk of a choice uh, kind of signposted in advance? Do you know what you're getting into? And a, a lot of games are designed in a way where like there's no signposting about the danger that's coming up. So you just walk into the trap and you're like, oh, I lost. Okay, you know, reload from a minute ago, try the other alternative. To me, that's not rewarding. I, I want to be in a, in a world where 
my actions have consequences, but I'm also able to make informed judgments. Like that's one of the reasons I got into business instead of, you know, being an employee, because I, I felt like there was a, a more direct connection between my actions and the consequences. So I find that very compelling. And it's also just so polished and there's so much stuff. There's so many layers and levels to learn, right? At first it's like the, 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 the technical aspect, can I do the things? And then it's like the strategic aspect, how should I do the things? Then it's like the meta layers, like everyone else is doing these things. So what should I do to compensate for that? So I enjoy it. It's a deep learning environment. Interesting. So Monster Train is the of a genre called Rogue what? What did you call those? So there, there was a famous game in the 80s. You huh. know, it's like Rogue. And, and it's like, you know, adventure through a dungeon. It's procedurally generated. So uh -huh. it's built by an algorithm, not a person. Get as far as you can, but you're eventually going to lose because it's infinite, right? And okay. it, it, it like... And so this category of games, they're rogue-like. Oh, uh, rogue-like, you know, okay. They're, they're built in the same style. Okay, got it. What would be the ideal entry point to this category of games? That, are, that I would describe what you're saying as pretty demanding, full attention, some people might call it intense. And yeah, what's, what are so, a few other entry points? I mean, for, for that, there, there's like the two different types I talked about. So yeah. for the for the full attention, super demanding, you like 100% focus, I'd say Path of Exile, just start there. Okay. It's free. It's incredible. There's no cheeky upsells. You know, there are ways you can give the money, but it's like is, is nothing that's, you know, abusing human nature. You know, it's very much a choice, not an obligation. Monster Chain's great for more like calm exploratory stuff. Like Minecraft is still so good. They just did an incredible update. And there, there's so much I've learned from Minecraft about, you know, like product design and community nurturing and all of that also. Like they, they've kept that game fresh for more than a decade now, right? What an incredible achievement. Uh, so I don't know, but poke around, right? Like okay. grab a copy of Steam, try a bunch of games. I probably buy 10 games for every one I end up loving. Right? Okay. There, there's like a bit of, you know, they're a big time investment, but a low money investment. So, you, you know, you, you grab a couple on, on deals and you see what you like. Um, have you tried? So the, the other one that's been recommended to me, I've started asking people, how can I develop a healthy addiction to, to games? And Subnautica is the other one that's been recommended. Is that one you've tried? <laughs> Never played it, but okay. uh, yeah, it's more like the 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 calm art exploratory, like the experience, right? Is that what you're looking for? Just I that's the problem. I don't know what I'm looking for. I just know that I have to try this. Something I've noticed is that different types of games draw from different energy pools for, for me. So okay. like if I'm playing chess seriously, and I, I'm not very good or anything, but if I'm really trying to give it my attention it takes away the same energy that I would otherwise put into writing or programming or business. Uh -huh. And and so it's, it's drawing from that limited reservoir, whereas other games seem to draw from a different reservoir or, or they, they, they fill it up. And so something I, I'm still working on and not great at is trying to find the ones that act to refill my energy levels rather than to draw them down further so that they can be a complement to my, my other life goals rather than you know at odds with them. Right. There's a sort of idea of you're expending energy, but you're sort of building up some other resource you'll need later elsewhere. What have you found that seems to work for that purpose? Games just aren't the best for me, okay. if I'm okay. being honest. They, they, they're not the answer to that. They all seem to either leave my energy neutral at best or to actively drain it. Whereas if I do something like bang on my ukulele or sit down with a paperback and do some reading... 
or get out some blank sheets of paper and do a little like journaling, all of that stuff refills me. It, mm -hmm. And, and I, I really noticed the difference or cold water swims also works. There, there, there's a cluster of things that really, I, I feel so much better and it, it gives me a real part two to my day. Mm -hmm. And game, for me, at least games just aren't that thing. I, I love them, but they, uh, they don't fill me up. Okay. Thank you for that. Some uh, listeners are wondering who's this Rob guy. <laughs> so Rob, let's do the typical podcast intro. Who are you? What do you do? I'm Rob Fitz. Uh, I, I went into startups kind of accidentally because they seemed like a low BS and low bureaucracy way to build products and, and be creative. So I dropped out of uh, grad school, got straight into startups. This was back in 2007. That first company went through YC. Um, we ended up failing after you know having some, some decent early successes and raising some good funding and all of that. And it's now been about 15 years that I've been building little products and businesses. Uh, the, the first one was VC backed. And since then I've been bootstrapping. I've done a mix of kind of, you know, after I was uh, the first company fails, right? You're trying to climb up from a hole of burnout and bankruptcy. Hmm. So I did a bit of like consulting, freelancing, um, service stuff, like whatever I could do to get quick cash flow to pay the bills, to remain independent without having to, to get a job. And then over time I've gotten more into, into product and, yeah, it's starting to click together and uh, I'm really enjoying it. And along the way, I've also written three books about what I learned, which do reasonably well. Um, and so those three books now do about 20,000 a month in royalties put together and they're mostly growing and, and, and pretty stable. And so, you know, I, I do that. I do the products, I do the business. And my current thing that I'm trying to figure out and understand, because I'm just terrible at it and I really, it matters to me and I want to understand it and do well, is understanding how to build useful communities because I think it's such a powerful application of teaching and product, and it's just not natural at all to me. So I've spent a lot of time trying to understand it, and I, I, that's what I'm trying to get better at. So the community part, the not natural part, how does that manifest for you? And it may help for me to say, like, for me, it shows up as, oh, I, I don't have the emotional energy for that, or maybe that's hmm. a sort of phantom objection. But like you run a community, around a book that you've published. So, uh, you know, like what, what are the hard parts and what have you learned about that? I can tell I don't understand something when I don't have a clear view of which levers to pull. Hmm. So to me, it feels murky. I felt the same when I was trying to understand customer development and, and, and customer research. I was thinking like, okay, I'm supposed to talk to customers. I'm doing it. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. It, sometimes it's working. Sometimes it's not. But I didn't have a clear view of the system and the ingredients of the system and what was causing my inputs to return good or bad outputs. And I, I felt like that early on with the community also. Uh, and okay, I, I, I feel like I've kind of mimicked what other people are doing. I feel like it's working for some people and not for other people, but I don't know why. And then, you know, internally, I feel that is is like some combination between overwhelm and stress, mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't even know what the moving parts are. So how can I improve this system? And I was, I was trying to learn about it, right? I was reading everything. I was talking to all these smart people who seemed to be really good at it. And it was the exact same problem I had. So I'm like a, a socially incapable introvert, right? Mm -hmm. Was how I started my startup career. And I've mm -hmm. since added some skills and I'm like, I hope I'm okay now. Mm -hmm. But like when I was trying to learn about sales, every book about sales was written by someone who's an, an, an extrovert and a natural salesperson. Right. 
And so I'm, I'm like, man, it's impossible for me coming from a different starting point to learn from their perspective, from their worldview. I, I need the book written by someone who's terrible, who got to decent, you know, not the book written by someone who's naturally good and got to amazing. And I, I just had to, you know, I, I fumble through that and I, I feel like I went through the same process. Now, at least I feel like there's still a long way to go, but I just like, I'm at a point where it's like, I see the moving pieces. So it's like, okay, you know, this is, I, I can now start playing with the system and improving it. And suddenly the stress disappears because hmm. it's like, okay, I'm still in a similarly bad spot, but at least now I can see the path forward. It feels less random. Yeah, it feels less random. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like ambiguous problems because, you know, I, I feel like it, it, they're important problems and it's nice to, uh, you know, hold. It's, <laughs> I always think of like melting through a wall of ice by holding your face against it. <laughs> and most people aren't comfortable doing that, but it's like, because it's slow progress and it's uncomfortable, but it's like, hey, you're getting there. Just keep going. Uh, like, uh, like, hold yourself against that pain for long enough and you're, you're going to get through. And of course, that's really stupid if there's another way around. But in, in some cases, the only way through is through. And uh, so normally I like them, but then community is extra stressful to me because it, it's making a promise to other people. You're, you're saying, hey, join this and I'm going to help you with this. And, and when I've made that sort of promise, I really want to be able to follow through. And so like if I'm screwing up my book, for example, I don't really care because that's a that's an individual and a private failure that doesn't have consequences to other people. Whereas the community felt a bit more, it has more fallout, it has more collateral damage if I mess up. So that that made it a little bit more stressful to me for for better or worse. You uh, didn't. It sounds like did not find a resource that fits that sweet spot of. I was terrible at community. <laughs> I sort of am so-so at it now. Here's what I've learned. Did you find anything that filled that gap? Not completely, but there's there's so many brilliant people writing about it right now that yeah. it, it's been a case of drawing drawing pieces and ideas from here and there. Uh, so like Rosie Sherry, she has a community for community builders called Rosie Land. Uh, she shares so much good stuff. There, there's so many other people writing about it. There's great stuff coming out of the, um, the nifty and the crypto world right now. Mm -hmm. and, and none of this is something that I'm able to copy, you know, in, in total. Right. But it's like, ooh, there's an interesting concept there. There's a concept there. And, and you know, just like melting through the wall of ice, like eventually with enough exposure, like I, I found enough of these pieces where it's like, okay, I get a framework that I, I think is actionable for me. I have no idea if it would work for anyone else, but it's like, you know, like big building blocks. So you've got a, like mine is is outcome oriented, right? Like my mm -hmm. book is about you know writing writing books, very meta, mm -hmm. and so the community is about you know hey you you have an idea for a book, let's get it to a successful book, and and so there's that shared goal. It's like the community succeeds if our members are creating successful books. If our members aren't creating successful books, then the community has failed, or like I have failed as a community builder rather. Yeah. So there's like the shared goal. There's, there's shared beliefs that are different from the mainstream beliefs. Like the mainstream beliefs are that books always fail or that it's a gamble or that you can't succeed unless you're famous. Like we have, we have different beliefs than that. And then there's a onboarding flow. So like, how do you get a new member to their first few wins where they, they take action, you're building behavior change and they receive wins in return. And they're like, wow, this is working. I, I'm getting closer to my goal than I could have done by myself. And, and that creates the belief and the buy-in and this virtual cycle of action which then leads them like, we can't do anything. I can't make an author succeed, but I can maybe like uh, encourage the right behavior change, which allows them to succeed on their own. And then the last piece is the heartbeat, 
which is like a regular and predictable kind of schedule of content, events, activities, whatever, which serves a bunch of purposes. Um, it sees the culture. It, it brings people together at particular moments, which creates pockets of critical mass where, where they're around other people uh, who are in the same place as them. It, it makes sure it doesn't become a ghost town, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think now in terms of those four building blocks, and to me, that's like an ex actionable system that I can work with and manipulate and try to improve and optimize and fix and debug. The feedback loop that says to Rob, this is working, this is improving, this is getting better. You mentioned a couple things that might be a part of that. It, your own feeling, your own sort of level of stress or anxiety, and then observable stuff, authors getting wins, stuff happening in the community. Are there other things that were valuable feedback that said, that said I'm, I'm headed in the right direction somehow? So we've got the quantitative metrics, of course. We, we, we've got, um, we, we track retention and, and monthly cohorts so that we can see is like how each month, like how many people are coming in and what their retention pattern is over time. And obviously we're hoping that that gets better. Uh, and then there's qualitative stuff. What, one of the brilliant things of, of community as a product and a product category, and it's something that probably not every consultant should be using, but certainly uh, probably the majority should, if you're writing a book, if you're giving consulting or coaching services, you're basically trying to get people to an outcome, right? And community is really good for accountability and behavior change. Mm -hmm. and, and what it gives you in return is that it, it gives you this wide open door to receiving an incredible fidelity and amount of, of customer feedback. Because in a community, like if you set it up in the right way, People spend all day basically talking about their problems and challenges and what they're stuck on. Mm -hmm. And that's ex exactly the sort of insight that you need to build the breakthrough book or the breakthrough coaching program, or to like identify the, the, the people who are really in need of you know, assistance or an intervention. So that's incredible, just passively watching them. You've basically created this treasure trove of, of observational insights. And then also when they join the community, so, Every time someone joins, they get a little message from me sort of saying like, hey, you know, welcome. Here's what's going on. Here's how to get started. That conversation thread has already been started. And so when they have a problem, they just message me. Whereas normally through other products and services, the barrier from going from no communication to sending a cold email from the customer's perspective is such a hurdle. So the it honestly feels like a, a customer development superpower. And it's, I've done so much cust dev in, in, in my career. And this is so much better quality and so much easier than anything I've ever experienced before. It's incredible. If you were going to revise the mom test, would some of what you just indicated make it in there? Would, would that alter your approach to that? Or is that book's focus uh, necessarily so tight that you wouldn't really add in anything about community? So the biggest mistake I made with the mom test while, while we're on the topic and the biggest error I want to correct in the next edition is that I think I was too quick to say that an idea is bad and you should give up. And that is an important concept because typically we're blinded by, by absolute faith in our vision, right? Right. And, and you need to have faith in your vision. And so like in some ways that like heavy counterpoint, it's like, hey, nobody cares. Maybe it's not going to work. You know, think about that. Uh -huh. like, that has some value. But there's also a category of businesses where nobody cares, but it's not because the idea is bad. It's because you haven't found the right way to describe it or it's because the idea hasn't come, or it's because you need to put a lot of legwork into polishing the product before people understand what you're trying to do. And so I guess what I would say now is like, hey, if you're getting these uh, 
non-responsive signals from your early customer conversations, it doesn't mean the idea is bad. It just means you haven't found an easy path yet. So then you got to decide, like, is there a hard path we can take or do we not want to take the journey altogether? Right. But like leave that decision in the founder's hands. So I, I think I was a bit too fast and loose with, with, with that, you know, judgment in terms of the community led custev. I think there's something really interesting here, which is that uh, so Steve Blank invented customer development and Steve Blank is an enterprise software dude. Mm -hmm. And so customer development emerged out of the enterprise sales process and every part of it is built around the enterprise sales process. And when you're doing enterprise sales, customer development, like in its current form is essentially free because you are already going to be having all of these conversations with your customers, even pre-product. And so why not use those conversations, which would have otherwise been, been sales focused to also bring some learning, right? Right. So it's all upside, no downside. However, for a marketing-led organization or someone who's consumer-focused, you're not normally going to be having those customer conversations, right? They're like not in your normal company workflow. And so that creates an extra cost to doing this style of customer development. And so I think there's an opportunity for someone to invent uh, marketing-first or community-first customer development, which is kind of what I feel that that is happening you know, in the community where you go, okay, if our community is marketing led, sorry, if, if our startup, if our product is marketing led, you know, we're not talking to every customer, what's a way that we can still get in that feedback, get in that understanding, even pre-product, even pre-launch community feels so good. Um, so good. It's situational. And also community is very expensive to create in terms of founder time. And so it, it's not like an easy answer for everyone, but uh, in the right context, it, it's a much better fit than trying to tack an enterprise sales process onto a company that doesn't naturally use that. A long time ago, I had a, a group coaching program. I think I charged $300 a month for it called the uh, Positioning Accelerator Program. And I had just published a book on positioning and it was... It was kind of doing what you talked about. It was leaning real hard in a certain direction where nowadays I have a, I think, a more nuanced perspective. And I'm not as dogmatic with the, the kind of advice or maybe over-promising <laughs> in some ways I think that first book was. Anyway, I was, I was charging people money to learn where I was wrong. And saying it that way now makes it seem like it was intentional and I feel good about it. I'm not sure I feel great about it because, you know, you see how the advice gets better over time, but it's a, it's a variation of what you are talking about. And I got paid for it. There's also some value in putting early ideas out there, right? Like there, there, there's compounding yeah. benefits to those ideas being out in the world, even when they're, they're half baked and I'm struggling with this now because my last kind of three big ideas have been books. And with a book, you have a luck, the luxury of spending a year or two years on it. And you can put it through really rigorous peer review and reader review and evaluate. You can hone it. You can make sure it's saying what you intend it to say. But you can't realistically put every new idea through that sort of process. And it's valuable for new ideas to be out in the world. So I've been trying to find like, how, how do I put new ideas out there when they're very likely to be wrong and they're almost certainly to be rough. And yeah. I, I know it sounds easy. It's like, oh, it's just a blog post. 
but it feels hard to me because like when when all of my recent ideas have been like super polished it's like oh it's how, how do I, I i just want to be careful about framing it in a way where it's like hey this one's half baked but like it, I, I think there's something interesting here and i want it to be out in the world so that you you can take it and run with it and make it better i hear that so much and it instantly calls to mind every person I've talked to on this podcast and elsewhere who is viewed as an authority, you know, their, their expertise is trusted by the market. People trust them to give helpful, good advice. And those folks will eventually tell you a story about someone doing the opposite of what they said and succeeding and then sometimes weirdly attributing the success to the authority, even though the action taken was in perhaps complete opposition <laughs> to that person's advice or their point of view or what have you. And it, to me, it, it brings this tremendous humility about what, what are like the boundaries of our advice, like how much can our advice actually do for people? And there's a pessimistic take on that, like, well, not that much. Or there's an optimistic take of it can inspire action and then you can trust those who take the action to insure themselves against loss or stop short of disaster. It, like you can trust them. And, and maybe the important part was that it inspired action, not the total fidelity of the advice to their situation. There's, I mean, I mean you can go too far with that and say, well, it doesn't matter. And it's their fault if I give bad advice and they take it. Like that, I think, is going too far. But there's a really interesting place for humility somewhere in the middle there. I was talking to a pretty famous early stage investor one time. And I was sort of like, you know, what happens when you encourage, uh, you know, a team and it goes wrong, hmm. you know? And, and he, he looks at me and he sort of shrugs and he goes, he goes, young people bounce. <laughs> And I was like, man, and I think about that all the time. And like, I, I wish I could have such a casual approach to it because I second guess the advice I'm giving all the time. But I also don't necessarily think he's wrong, you know, because like I was one of the people he pushed off the cliff and I bounced, you know, and yeah. he was right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. I don't know. It's an OF, whatever, man. I, I would love if, if some, uh, someone listening to this has the answer, please email me and tell me because it, it freaks me out. Yeah. I mean, is that sort of a um, comes with the territory kind of thing, you think, with the kind of work that you do? Meaning that uh, existential whatever, that feeling of like, wow, this may not go right for everybody and my name's on it. Is that just a cost of doing business? I think it depends a lot on the topic and the potential downside. And I think there's also like your, your reputation as a multiplier of the, of the potential downside. Right. Mm. So I loved being an unknown nobody because I could, I could come out with the craziest ideas. And I felt like when nobody knew who I was, all that mattered was the quality of my ideas and those ideas would succeed or fail based on their own merits. And now I feel like there's much more drag against me in a similar way to like, and, and it's, I'd like to think that it's more like I'm worried about the, I, I, I don't know, Philip, man, it, this is, it, it's tough, right? Yeah. Like, and it's something that it's causing me to be suboptimal, like deeply suboptimal. 
and to stop sharing stuff because I'm like I'm too concerned about the downside. And I think I'm like way too far in like the 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 crazy like anxiety spiral side of things. But then I also think like say anything and let them sort it out is also wrong. I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. And I haven't found a middle ground I'm comfortable with. Something uh, my my co-founder Devin told me to do the other day. Because I, I said, you know, when I show up to um, like a podcast or a talk, like I, I'm not going to do it if I'm just re- repeating uh, rehearsed lines, right? Sure. Like if it's, you know, if I'm repeating rehearsed lines, that's like a polished talk and I'm going to charge a bunch of money for it. Like the, the reason podcasts are fun is because it's like, wow, I get to think through and explore new ideas with an interesting person who's like, you know. But when, you, when you're thinking about new stuff, you're going to inevitably say some stupid things or say a smart thing in the wrong way, which like gets misinterpreted and comes across stupid. It's like, how do I do this, you know, in a way that feels honest and sincere? And uh, Devin's suggestion to me, he's like, well, just start a recurring series, you know, a recurring blog series where you're like, here's what I said this week that was stupid. And here's why it was wrong. And here's what I was trying to say, you know, to like yeah. add that buffer. And if you do that uh, repeatedly, uh, he, he told me this like two days ago, and I'm, I'm in the process of starting it. And I'm also going to go through my old blog because back in 2010, I wrote hundreds and hundreds of blog articles when like Lean Startup was a brand new thing. And I was like, oh, we're all fig- like, I'm figuring it out. And uh, I look back at them and I'm like, wow, I was just dead wrong. You know, uh-huh. like I was coming at this from one perspective and I didn't understand the whole like universe or the whole ecosystem or what it's like to be in a different perspective. And um I basically want to go through and basically roast every old blog post I wrote uh, 15 years ago, or what is it, 12 years ago, and be like, this is why this was wrong, you know? And, and here's how it should be corrected. And I think that baking that sort of self-criticism into my ongoing process will allow me to, to feel comfortable getting out there because people will know that like, oh, we can check in a week and he'll tell us how he was wrong. I like that idea. I've done that on a longer time scale. I, I think maybe this should be for anyone who's in any kind of advice business, at least a, once a, every two years or maybe once a year. But, you know, on the about page of my website is a link to an article, things I've changed my mind about, mm. 2021 edition or whatever. I don't remember the, <laughs> the exact title, but, you know, that, that giving it the, the name of a year and saying it's that year's edition to me is trying to set a precedent for myself that I am going to change my mind, hopefully not in uh, embarrassing ways, frankly. <laughs> but um, I just love the idea of doing that thing that you're, you're describing where you just kind of roast your previous self or point out the, the excesses that have become more nuanced and centered or you know, pointing out the, well, this made sense, but boy, I have a lot more context now. That's, that's great, I think. I heard you say, Philip, on a, on a different podcast that, you know, the reason we get into this stuff is to avoid the, the, the partial death of our souls. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, build product, build a life, support our family and, and do all of that in a way that, that feels honest and authentic to our, you know, to our values and, you know, the way we want to spend our time and all of that stuff. And like product enables all of that, right? Or like working for yourself instead of working for someone else, so like it enables all of that, but then it, it ends into this other, you know, this next tricky question, which is like, okay, wow, now, now that I can do whatever I want, like, how do I do that in a way that, that feels authentic? And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm happy that, uh, you know, it's like, 
I, I guess it's a luxury to be able to think about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's nice. I, I want to figure it out because I, I want to, it stops me from putting myself out there, right? Because I'm like, I, I know how to write books in a way that I feel is is completely moral. Because uh-huh. it's like, yes, I'm like saying something I believe in and it works and blah, blah, blah. You know, but it's a high time investment. But I don't know, for example, anymore how to write a blog post in a way that feels completely moral. And so that's something that I need to crack because obviously like not doing that, like only putting yourself out there on a two-year tempo (laughs) is a pretty hard way to build, uh, you know, visibility and trust, as you would say. Yeah, indeed. What's interesting, I suppose, is, you know, if someone's going to buy a book with your name on it, they can do that for 10 bucks, but that's still more money. Than the pod, than the blog post, where you feel a greater obligation, and I don't know where to go with that, but that's interesting. It's not about what they spend; it's what what I was able to put into it. So, with a book, I'm pretty sure that like every claim in it is, you know, well, most of them. Yeah. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you're saying. Um, you just you feel like you can stand behind the book more so than the blog post. Exactly. One of the things I want to spend some time with you talking about is this idea of iteration. And I will just elaborate for just a minute for listeners so they can understand why that's important and relevant. Um, but that connects to something I felt that you described that reminded me of what I feel, this sort of sophomore moment, the second time the follow-up to the thing that worked. Anyway, you have a book that I think is excellent. It's called Write Useful Books. And, or am I getting, am I dropping some words from the title, Rob? Is it How to Write Useful Books? No, Write write Useful Books is correct. Okay, thank you. That's the name of the book. And I encountered this book, I don't know, um, six, eight months ago. And it just, this, this, I, there's a lot of good stuff in it, but there's this one idea that was so impactful for me, which is that even with a published book, mostly self-published, I guess, but even with a published book, the version you put out, the first version doesn't have to be the final version. This is true even if you hire designers to help you with it. This is true even if you publish it on Amazon.com. Um, this is true even if you uh, commit to print versions of the book. You can iterate on the first version. That idea changed everything for me. And so I, um, I think we're in some ways dancing around this when we talk about you know, blog posts and writing updates to our thinking and roasting our previous limited versions of our thinking. How did you end up with this idea in the book in Write Useful Books? this idea about iteration? <laughs> I put out my first book. So the, the the setup to my first book was that I'd failed my first company, even though we had some of the world's best investors and some great customers. We had like Sony and MTV and the BBC as customers. Like we'd made a lot of progress, right? We were on TV. We we're on America's number two live talk show. We'd made a lot of progress and then we still failed. And I was like, man, that, 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 that sucks. And I thought I understood the reason why, which is basically that I was running my, my customer conversations and my sales conversations incorrectly. And I, I felt like I'd figured it out. So at a certain point, I, I, I had an idle week or two. So I kind of banged out the first draft and then um, 
you know, loss aversion or sunk cost fallacy or whatever forced me through the next nine months of finishing it. And I put it out in a rush, which was actually a huge benefit because I think I would have fiddled. I, I was so, it's such a scary thing, you know, to put out, to put out, it's like, this is the book. But a conference called me and basically said, they'd been beta readers of the, of my early manuscript. And they said, hey, we loved the, the manuscript. When's the book ready? If it's ready in time, we'd love to, to give 500 copies to our, our conference attendees. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> these, these are the perfect readers. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm in no way ready, but there's also no way I can miss this opportunity, right? Yeah. And I was broke. So I was like, listen, I, I can't afford to just give you the books for free. Can you pay for printing costs? It's two pounds per book. You know, they were in the UK. And they're like, meh. So like a thousand pounds. They're like, eh, let me check. They call back the next day. They're like, yeah, okay, we can do two pounds per book. And I was like, brilliant. Okay, I'll get them to you. Uh -huh. And so I was just in a mad dash at that point. And it was a mess, man. The first version was so embarrassing. There were just sentences that literally just ended in the middle of the sentence, like with no punctuation, just like end of sentence, next paragraph, like halfway through. <laughs> it, it was it was a debacle. But the 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 core value of the book was there. Like it was you know, people could extract it. They're like, wow, I get it. They're like, Rob, like you write a sloppy book, but like, I get what you're trying to say. And like, wow, that's important. And, and they could use it and they recommended it. And, they, and so I was like, wow, okay, I'm not crazy. Like people like it. And I kind of had the inkling of this from early readers, but I'm like, yeah, but this is embarrassing. So I got to hustle. Huh. So basically for the next like six weeks, each week I launched like a new version of the book. Uh -huh. And I was just like, upload the files to Amazon, send out the PDF, like blah, blah, blah. And it was fine. And some of my early reviews, they were saying things like, you know, five stars, this book is a complete disaster, like not proofread, poorly written, like not for like, but the idea is so important, like absolutely worth working through to get to get to the idea. And, and I was like, okay, so it, it reminds me a, a lot of product development or, you know, launching a service, like if people care about the outcome, they're willing to work through some garbage to get to an important outcome. If the outcome's unimportant, then like any little piece of frustration or any little speed bump will throw them into a rage, hmm. right? But if it's life changing, if it's transformational, if it's business enabling, they're like, yeah, this matters. Of course, I'm going to spend an extra 10 minutes trying to figure out what this dude is trying to say. And I was like, okay, so there's like the, the pre-launch iteration where you go, I believe I have something worth saying, or mm -hmm. I believe I have a product worth bringing to the world. And no one else gets it yet, but I'm going to keep trying different versions. I'm going to keep trying to improve it because I know there's some wrapping, some packaging you can put around this core concept, which the world will accept. And this like core thing is, is too important not to do that work for. So there's like the pre-launch iteration or the pre-product market fit iteration or whatever. And then there's the iteration afterwards, which is like, yeah, it's, it's out there. It's kind of working, but like, I got to polish it, right? Like, let me, let me, like, why stop here? Mm -hmm. and, and you can, no one's telling you you can't do that. Um, and, and people do it to themselves. Like, uh, for example, like, let's say that you hire an expensive designer to do a fancy visual layout of your book. Well, now you've got like a $1,000 or $2,000 disincentive around creating a new version, right? Because yeah. you've put this speed bump in your process. Or like, let's say you record the audiobook at day zero. Well, man, that takes like 40 hours. Yeah. 
and and now you're like, oh, I'm going to change chapter two. It's like, man, am I really going to spend another 40 hours re-recording the audiobook? And so I've tried to keep my optionality open. Like with the most recent book, I haven't recorded the audiobook yet. And the reason I haven't is because I know that as soon as I do, I'm not going to want to iterate on the text anymore. What are the other forms of sunk cost that have that kind of emotional power to prevent us from iterating? You, I mean, you mentioned audiobook, you've, yeah. ex- expensive layout. Uh, you said website just now? Uh, on websites, it's stuff like beautiful design. Uh-huh. In almost any case, it's beautiful illustrations. Anything you need to hire some sort of freelancer for is going to, you're, you're not going to want to throw that away. Uh-huh. That, that's what it feels like to me. Do you, do you want to add to the list? What, what, what strikes you? Well, I mean, going a level up, there is the fortune, the luck of, and maybe it's it's not that luck is all there is to it, but there is the the out of the gate success, the first time, the freshman success. I think that has, I, I it's it's such a mixed blessing. It's not a bad <laughs> thing at all. Like I mean. I don't think if someone if someone had the option to evaluate it as an offer and accept it or turn it down, I would say accept the the freshman success. Don't turn that down, but okay. just know that that becomes sunk cost in a way. It, I mean, it's it's an accelerant. It propels you. It gives you access to new opportunities. All these good things happen. Yes, and also. <laughs> Something else happens. <laughs> you start to doubt yourself the second time. Can I repeat it? What if the second one isn't as good? You know, <laughs> the what if game, like it's, it is a, a, just a hell of a mental game to follow that up. So that's another thing that occurs to me. Did, I mean, did, I, I don't I know, did that happen to you or, or was it, you've used the word bankruptcy twice in our conversation and I wonder if that's a metaphorical or a real physical thing that you went through. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wasn't legally bankrupt, but I was functionally bankrupt in yeah. the sense that uh, I, I, I was technically homeless for quite a while after uh-huh. my first business. Okay. And I, I did the first stage of it. Uh, I, I had uh, keys to a friend's office because we used to sublet from them. Uh-huh. So... After I couldn't afford my own apartment, I basically was was going into their office late at night, and and I I brought up like uh, a lightweight mattress, you know, almost like a camping mattress that right. I rolled up and stuffed in an electrical cupboard uh-huh. in their office, and I, I would go up late at night after it was dark, and I would sleep under the boardroom table, and then I was like, I would wake up, I'd set my alarm for like five a.m., and I'd like wake up and roll up the mattress, stuff it back in, and leave. And I was like that for months. And then one day they did a, uh, like a weekend all hands meeting, like an executive all hands meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And so they showed up to the boardroom and I thought it was the weekend. So I thought I was clear. And the the founder, you know, he wanders into the boardroom and I'm like there sleeping under his table. And he's like, you know, I, I see him. He was very diplomatic about it. He's like, he's like, hey, everyone, would you mind going and grabbing a coffee? Uh, you know, I need to clean up here. You know, and, it, and he's like, Rob, are you homeless? And I'm like, I technically am. <laughs> and, and then after that, I, I had a little bit of pocket money left that I'd been sort of, you know, saving as my emergency stash. And I found this um, warehouse in, in Shoreditch in London that was scheduled to be demolished because it was completely garbage, you know. And 
I, I put in an offer because no one else wanted it because, you know, it's like they couldn't guarantee. They were just waiting for the someone to finish the investments. They're like, mm -hmm. at any day, it could be demolished and mm -hmm. we're going to give you no consistency on your on your tenancy. Uh -huh. And so I got it at a, at a discount, spent a week or two fixing it up. And I, I turned that into a break-even co-working space. And that's where I lived. But, you know, we had no running water. I had to shower from a jug hung from the, <laughs> the ceiling beams and all of that. So, yeah, I, I did that for a while. That was like... Uh, I don't know, like a year and a half, which uh -huh. was right after my first company. And the reason I did it, I did it uh, willingly because I could have gone to family. I could have gone to friends, but I, I could have gotten a job. Like I, I had so many options, but I, I kind of felt like it was so important to me at the time that I maintain my independence and that I not allocate all of my attention because I really wanted to understand We'd worked on the first business for four years, and I really wanted to understand like what had gone wrong with that business, what mistakes that I made. And I felt that if I allocated my time to a job or something like that, then I wouldn't have time to process what had happened. So I, I, I spent that year in, in physical discomfort, but mental ecstasy, because I, I had all the time in the world to kind of think through, you know, and understand what had gone wrong. And that's where I started to build my you know, my, my understanding about startups and my, I started blogging, I built the newsletter, uh, I started running lots of events. That's where I built my network. Like all of the foundations that led to the rest of my career happened during that, uh, that one difficult year. You know, if you haven't had to take a shower at a YMCA because that's your only place to take a shower, you haven't really lived. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I know. To, I don't know if London has YMCAs, one, but, uh, does that, does that reference make sense? It does. It does. Okay. So w one particularly funny moment, um, the, the, the little, the way I'd planned to use this warehouse was as a co-working space. So I went to like, um, one of the places that, that takes the furniture from failed businesses, you know, they, they yeah. repossess it. Like and a liquidation place. And I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I got a bunch of desks and this, and I'd like, I'd like calculated the square footage and I'm like, yeah, I can put all these desks in and you know, it's going to be this profitable co-working space. And then I'll be able to, anyway, so we, we had our first like big client who's, um, who's now filing for their IPO. At the time, they were like a brand new startup, list.com. And they just raised uh, $85 million to file for their IPO. And we were their like, first office. And they, they come in, it's like, uh, at, at first it was the three founders. And then they, they hired like four more employees, you know? And they're in the fashion industry. So it's these, the, these young women who are like, they've gone to fashion school. And, and they got hired and they showed up for their first day of work, you know, which at the office, which is our office. And, and, and they, they open the door and it's like me showering from a jug hung from the ceiling, which I drilled holes in the bottom of because I heated water in a kettle, poured it into these five gallon jugs. And then, then and they just like fled. And I was like, oh, man, I've just destroyed this company. Welcome to the like office. Four hours later, they skeptically returned and they're like, is this the office? Oh, uh, they survived so, so many so difficulties sorry. after that, but they were well prepared by that first challenge, <laughs> seeing Rob showering. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, <laughs> there is, I guess, a lot to be learned in those moments. So you were in a sort of, your own kind of Walden pond for that, that year, right? Except much, much less isolated but still in a sort of uh, barren 
uh, physical thing. Like, what did you, how, how did, what you reflected on what happened? Where was the biggest aha moment or like the biggest reversal or the biggest, I was such an idiot moment? Like what sorts of things came out of that learnings? So it started to click just before my first business failed. And mm. it clicked because one of our advisors actually came with me to a meeting. Uh, and there's there's like this this gap that happens, this air gap between advice given and insight received, you know? Uh-huh. Like the 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 chess grandmaster gives advice and the student learns nothing. <laughs> right. And but then the students like, yeah, I was doing this, and the 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 the, the teachers like, yeah, it sounds like you're doing the right stuff, and, and the words don't capture the the action, and so I had these amazing sales advisors, and they were telling me what to do, and I was telling them what I I did, and we both thought that everything was on course, and, and at a certain point, one of them, uh, Peter Reed, who was is amazing, he he was sort of like, listen, Rob, what you're saying doesn't makes sense like the results you're getting don't line up with what you're telling me you're doing so let me come with you to a meeting and we were we were pitching uh sony in los angeles and we were going to fly there from from london he was sort of like look i've been looking for an excuse to go to la for a while i'll meet you there so he shows up in his like red convertible you know all flashy mm -hmm. and fun <laughs> and he, he joins us in in the meeting and five minutes in he he just talks over me and takes over the meeting, which I was so grateful for because I, I was completely out of my depth. Hmm. It, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with just this sense of overwhelm and like, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm trying my hardest, but I don't know if it's in the right direction. Yeah. And after the meeting, we, we went to a little cafe and he goes, okay, Rob, I, I know exactly what you're doing wrong. And I was like, I know exactly what I'm doing wrong now that I've seen you do it right. And I needed that. I needed someone to to catch me in the act and to demonstrate the difference between what I was doing and what he was doing. And, and so I that was the transformational moment. And that was like a few months before we went uh, out of business. Mm -hmm. And the next year was really just processing that because I'm like, wow, that was the that's the seed. That's the the key that explains all of my other mistakes. So let me just pull on this thread and explore what it means. And, and I played that out as blog posts. Something else was that my my investors, everyone had been like, Rob, you got to be blogging, you know? And I'm like, mm -hmm. eh. And I would write one blog post that I would work really hard on and then nothing would happen. And I'd go, look, it doesn't work. This is stupid advice. Like blogging is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and so once I was, you know, uh, unemployed and had all my time to myself, I was like, you know what? Those are smart people telling me to do that. Let me just blindly trust them. Uh -huh. And so for for three months, I, I committed to writing one blog post per day without looking at any of my analytics or metrics. Because mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to be discouraged by it not working. I want to just fully commit to this. Like three months should be enough time. for, And then after that, I'll look at it and decide if I want to continue. <laughs> And it was incredible. And after three months, I was like, I am never stopping this. Uh, and I eventually did due to like self-doubt and imposter syndrome. But that only happened because I was succeeding too much and I didn't know how to handle it. And, and I, I, I didn't have the emotional competence or the, the self-awareness to know what to do with that much success. So, so I, I, I was so stressed out and so anxious about it that one day in, in kind of a, a moment of clarity or insanity, I went into my email list and I just deleted the entire list because I'm like, I, I can't handle this stress. Hmm. Um, and that was, you know, 
my failure for not being able to handle it, but also I would say like the 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 failure of like the startup education system for not teaching me how to how to handle it. Hmm. And so now I'm slowly, you know. Anyway, that's the 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 the, the long and dramatic story. That is so beautiful. Um, one of the things we sort of keep gesturing at here is this delta between value created in some way, you know, the value we're creating for the market, and the um, the objective measure of that income, revenue, customers signing up, um, community thriving, like whatever that objective measure or observable measure, let's say, may not be like a totally quantitative measure, but it's observable. Hmm. How long do you persist through those kinds of deltas? It sounds to me like at or above average for sure. But how do you think about that? I'm doing something. I know it's valuable. I believe in it because you've seen the other side where you, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong, but the money is there. I mean, in advance through investment, but still, <laughs> um, that's kind of the inverse of that. So what, what are your thoughts about that? I'm currently willing. So, so like my current business, which is supporting indie authors, uh, Devin and I talked about timescales and, mm -hmm. and we basically said, this is a, a, a 10 year business. We're not mm -hmm. going to see meaningful results for, for a decade. And, and we sort of said, are we up for that? Yeah, we are. However, that's because we're in, we're in a comfortable situation. So we're able to just like carve off a decade. Like when I was younger, so I started, what was it? I started my first business at, at, at 24, I wanna say. And it failed when I was around 28. And then after that, I was broke, burned out, you know, and, and in a chaotic place. At that point in my life, there was zero chance that I was gonna be carving off a 10 year commitment, right? Yeah. Right. Like I was worried about buying food or, or like having the money to go on a date with someone yeah. like without having to ask them to pay yeah. like, or like being able to pay rent, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the, these things change as you, you, your, your, your personal constraints change the, the types of ideas and the types of commitments you can undertake with, with your, your, your professional aspirations also change. And like when I was after that first experience, I, I set my goal incredibly single sightedly on freedom because I felt that we'd made a huge mistake with our first company. Our investors treated us incredibly well. Like mm -hmm. none of what I'm about to say is our investors fault. Like yeah. they were incredibly supportive, incredibly honest, incredibly everything. Uh, they're great. If I ever want to raise funding again, I'll absolutely give them right of first refusal. However, as a young person, I couldn't emotionally handle the responsibility of someone giving me millions of dollars. And so I created my own enemy and, and I wound myself into knots. And so I ended up feeling through, through the actions of no one but myself, like I was, you know, in this sort of like terrible slavery job, you know, where I had to perform and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so after that, after coming out of that, I, I wanted the exact opposite, which is like, I want maximum freedom, freedom of time, freedom of place, freedom of attention, freedom from urgency. And I was like, how do I get that? And it took me four years. So from 28 to 32, I worked just like, I want that. And at 32, I was like, cool, I never need to work again. Mm -hmm. And it's on autopilot and I'm retired. 
so I, I learned how to sail. I spent, I bought a, an old sailboat from the seventies. Uh-huh. I spent three or six months in a boatyard, basically rebuilding the hull because it was in shambles. I, I learned boat repair. I learned how to maintain a diesel engine. I spent three years living on the boat and I, I brought it from uh, where I bought it in London, eventually to Barcelona. I was like, yeah, I'm retired. I'm living the dream. I'm doing it. I, I got my freedom. <laughs> and then one day, one of my uh, buddies had a, like a work crisis. And so I was like, I'm going to help you. And we threw in and we had this intense weekend, you know, just these 18 hour days, just like work, work, work. Like we got to make it happen. Hmm. And I came out of that weekend more fulfilled than I'd felt in years. Oh, wow. And I had to accept the, 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 the harsh reality that I actually don't want complete freedom. Like I, I want the freedom to work on meaningful projects with interesting people who I admire. And that completely changed my life. Like I, I parked the boat, I sold it shortly afterwards. I bought a flat, I started my next business. Uh, I got a dog, like getting a dog is an intentional choice to remove yeah. freedom, right? Cause you're yeah. like, yep, I'm removing my freedom of time because I now will be walking you three or four times a day. Yeah. It's like, all these things. And so I've gradually, I thought I wanted maximum freedom. I achieved it. And, and my journey over the, the, the last however many years, three or four or five years, has been gradually realizing that actually I want to trade away pieces of that freedom for more meaningful anchors. And I, I see that journey uh, continuing. And I got to admit at this point, I can't remember your original question that led me onto this tangent. So I, I have to apologize for that. But uh, that, that's, that's kind of the end of this story. Thank you for the compliment. That's that's the mark of a good question is uh, you go somewhere and you forget what the question was, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let me throw in a little detail I wanted to ask about before. I think that there's some sort of center of gravity in people's mind, uh, people's meaning, all people who ever consider starting a community, if you could, under, could you know, see inside their mind, they all have some preconception. I mean, maybe not everybody. Maybe some people come to it with a totally uh, beginner's mind. But maybe it's like, oh, a community means you have a paid Slack room or a community means X. What do you think is that center of gravity and what's the actual range of what can be a community? Because I think you've thought about this more deeply than a lot of folks who actually end up starting a community. <laughs> so. Community is a a fuzzy word that includes a bunch of different categories. And the the slice, the subset that I'm interested in is is communities that help members to reach an outcome. And so the example I've been keeping in mind is climbing Mount Everest, where everyone who climbs Mount Everest has shared goals and shared values and shared experiences. And the other people on the journey matter, but they're not climbing Everest for the other people. Like the, the, the other people are companions on a meaningful individual journey. Uh, when people join my community, they're doing it because they want to write a book they couldn't have written otherwise, or they want to write a book that's more successful than they, they could have done otherwise, I, I think mostly. Um, and that's an individual journey, but they're going through an individual journey with companionship of other people who are also going through that, right? So it's shared goals, shared value, shared experience. And, and there's moments of camaraderie and, and socialization. So when you're climbing a, a mountain, you've got your base camps, you know, base camp one, base camp two, et cetera. In those moments, it's social. 
But at a certain point, you gotta you gotta climb the mountain, right? And like that's a lonely journey. Is it's the same with writing a book? Is if you're doing a fitness community, there's gonna be moments of, of companionship. But ultimately, like, are you gonna make the time and do the work to do your sit ups and your push ups and you know, experience that discomfort? So that's part of it. And and so then you go, okay, so what's my role as like a community creator? Well, it's to incentivize the the behavior change that helps them get to the it's two things. Sorry, let me let me step back. One, it's to chart the course. So like, no one would climb Everest if there was no path, <laughs> right? Like, you, you, yeah, there would be no community of like climbing a random mountain that most people die on. But because they've set up the base camps and the path, they've like charted the journey. It's like, oh yeah, I want to do that journey. So so part of what you're doing when you, when you create I'm, I'm calling these outcome oriented communities where it's like you're helping your, your members to get to a goal. And so it's the same value proposition as coaching or consulting, but at higher scale and a lower price point yeah. and, and with slightly less personalization, like a community is never going to be able to offer the level of personalization of a good coach, but, but it's more personalization than you get from a website or an app. So it's like, it's on that spectrum. Then you go, okay, so how do I incentivize the action? Well, one, like I give them the goals. First, you got to go to base camp one. Then you got to go to base camp two. You know, I, I give them the tools, the education, the encouragement. I show them stories of other people like them who have made this journey, who have taken the next step. And after they've taken a few of these steps, what it does is it, they get a win. They're like, wow, I'm, I'm going up the mountain. I'm getting closer to my goal. And that reinforces both the belief in the group and belief in the beliefs of the group, like the the values, like this is what we do. Like what we do is we write every day. What we do is we share our work in progress, even though it's not fully baked, you know? What we do is we we write even if we don't feel like it, whatever. And it's like, yeah, and as the, the more they make progress, the more that reinforces their beliefs. And, and that creates this virtuous cycle of action, which brings them to their goal, which creates evangelists. and. The, and then there's a lot of ways you can, you know, then start connecting members back to members. Like people who have already reached the goal want to help people who are who are struggling and aspiring, you know. And there's, you know, there, there's a lot of additional layers that I I would love to, to understand more about and to do a better job of. One of the things you are so good at is these sort of metaphors or analogies that are kind of physical in nature. Anyway, that's a, just an observation. You're so good at that, <laughs> Rob. So you have this clarity. You, you have this clarity about the community, its purpose, its you know how it sort of, sort of the moving parts, the mechanics, the stuff that you were talking about struggling with earlier because they just were not visible to you. Was it obvious how to map that onto a tool set? Did you have to do experimentation with the tools that are the you know sort of digital infrastructure of the community? I've been quite cowardly with the tool chain and I haven't wanted to take risks. And I don't know whether this is a smart decision or a bad decision on my part, but the one of the challenges with, with experimenting with community is that, okay, so if you're experimenting with a website, let's say you're running aggressive A-B tests on a website uh, or a pitch or whatever, failures do not matter because there's always the next pitch or there's always the next website visitor. When you're experimenting on a community, failures have tremendous downside because you're eroding your core group of fans and evangelists, which has made me want to be a lot more conservative with my experimentation and my choices. Uh -huh. And I think that's rational, 
but you know, maybe I'm stupid. Like maybe the scale we're at right now, like I should be willing to burn bridges because the upside is so much higher, but I, I just can't acknowledge that because it's like, it's people, right? And I don't want to play that game. So I may be being suboptimal, but whatever. So what I've done is I've tried to choose, okay. So that's one piece. Another piece is the idea of member workflows. So there seem to be two philosophies around tooling for communities. So one is that we're going to create a custom destination with a premium experience where it's like a new website or a new app or a new whatever. Cool. And, and when you're doing that, you get a lot of control over the experience. Uh, you can make it incredible and bespoke and all. But the downside is you're asking your members to change their workflow and basically remember to visit a new place regularly. That's super hard. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the details of the stat, but it's something like people go to like seven sites regularly or like nine sites regularly. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a small number. And you're basically saying like, I am so incredible that I am going to be one of those. Like I am going to kick out like Hacker News or I'm going to kick out Twitter and I'm yeah. going to replace it as one of their crucial nine like daily websites that they check. Like you're out of your mind, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, or you need to be so good. So there's that, or you go, the other alternative is to inject yourself into their existing workflows. So to me, the reason I chose Slack instead of Discord is that I feel a higher percentage of nonfiction authors already have Slack as part of their workflow. It's yeah. already open. So that's like in their workflow instead of asking them to change their workflow. And that's why also like uh, community building sites like Circle are incredible. But like, I don't know how to get people to change their workflow to involve like a random new website. And then the way people do that, the, the way they, they force workflow change is through a heartbeat. So the heartbeat is also an important part of community building, which is a regular schedule of high value content events or uh, activities, you know, like things that happen. And, and these are driven by the, the, the community creators or community managers or whoever. In our case, it's three weekly writing accountability groups. It's an update email every two weeks. It's a guest interview every two weeks, this live that people can come to. So we've got these like heartbeat events, right? When your, your, your community is built outside of people's workflow and you need to bring them back to you, the heartbeat plays an existential role because the heartbeat basically gets into their inbox or it gets into their calendar invites. And the heartbeat is like the way you, you force yourself into what they're already doing and remind them to come back to you. Uh, which is totally valid. And I, I've seen examples where that works. But one of the problems we have in the nonfiction uh, writing space is that there's not a lot of news. Like realistically, there's nothing I can say every week that's going to be interesting. Even every two weeks is a stretch because like things don't change, right? It's like Everest is just sitting there. It's like you want to write a book. It, it, it still works the same way. You, you, you want to climb Everest. It's the same deal. Like, <laughs> yeah. In a fast moving space, you can get away with a weekly like, boom, you got to read this email. There's a ton of stuff happening. Yeah, check this, go to this website, do this thing. But in my space, that didn't feel realistic. So I was like, okay, well, if my heartbeat's not going to be compelling and I can't find a way to make it fast enough, I can't get away with being outside their normal workflow. So I have to be really conservative. Hmm. So my decisions on tooling have, ju have just been, yeah, they've been really timid. Oh, I mean, I get it. I feel the same way about 
you know, like there, I have some clients on a, on a subscription payment system and I'm like reticent to migrate to something else, even if it has clear advantages, just because it's like, oh, it could be the one thing that someone needed to reevaluate <laughs> the value of this, you know, having to put in a credit card somewhere else. Anyway, um, so, Philip, Philip yeah. let, me, let me ask you a question here. Uh-huh. Um, m- my favorite line from, uh, from your book, from the, uh, the positioning manual for indie consultants is, uh, <laughs> you go, it's like saying do marketing, saying do marketing is like saying do marriage. Can, can you riff on that for me, please? Because I, I, I love this and I, I want to hear more. You know, that's funny because um, I was thinking that so much of what you and I have been talking about is how it is sort of, um, it's more about human relationships almost than anything else. Like, especially what you were saying just now. And that is what I mean about marketing is that there's, there certainly are transactional aspects to it. But I, I think especially when you're selling things that are big dollar amounts and a uh, relatively small customer base, you can adopt the idea that this is, you know, this is about a relationship. And so, uh, and there are other people who say similar things. Like my friend Jonathan Stark, I think, has said, you know, you kind of think about protecting your clients the way you would think about your beloved grandmother. You know, would you hmm. would you do that to her? Would you subject her to that? Is that the kind of, um, you know, sort of caring, supportive protection you would want to offer a beloved family member? And I'm not saying that our clients are like family or, you know, our businesses are like family. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's an equivalent level of care for that human being. Because, and, and if that is the starting point, if you say, I'm going to do this marketing thing the same way, I'm going to talk to the people on my email list the same way I would talk to uh, my mom, or not content-wise. Again, this is all about context. This is about where you're coming from and your motivations. That is a little bit what I was going for with that line. I loved it. To, to, to me, it's like, uh, it, it's not a unilateral decision. You know, yeah, exactly. It's like I think a lot. Like when 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 you're writing a book or building a product or whatever. I mean, I, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but it's like you know you have something important you want to bring into the world that can you know make people's lives or work or whatever better. But just because you you believe that and know that doesn't mean that that the presentation like the that's not enough, right? You also need to meet them in the middle. You, you need to meet the people it's for, understand their perspective, their context, like their situation, right? Yeah. Like there, there's dating, there's understanding, there's negotiation, there's compromise. And, and you, you find it and you're like, cool, like I found a way for this, this idea, this product, this whatever to, you know, find its place. Yeah. And it's special, like protecting that after after it works that way that you're describing is it's special. You want to, you want to hold on to it and protect it. I mean, not, you don't want to give up too much to do that, but it's worth protecting. Listen, this is uh this is selfish, but we got a, uh, we, we got a couple more minutes here on the clock. So, uh-huh. uh, uh, I, I, I'm a mess. You've got it together. What's, what's your advice for me? You know, <laughs> as a, as an aspiring person trying to, trying to find his, his place in the world and get his ideas out there. Oh, be as good at faking it as I am. <laughs> um, now, I, I mean, you and I could have a whole other interesting conversation about managing anxiety 
Um, the people who sound the most together, I think, I wouldn't overextend this, but I would, I would say they probably have dealt with more anxiety in their life than the average person. And a, a technique for managing that is just sort of regulating your, the way you show up in the world. Uh, no disrespect to folks who can't do that or haven't mastered that, but I, you know, it's sort of the two go hand in hand, like extreme introverts are often really, really sort of convincingly extroverted when they need to be as a survival skill, I think, or almost a survival skill. So it's the same kind of thing. Um, so apparently almost like the vast majority of stand-up comedians are deeply introverted. Oh, interesting. That doesn't surprise me a bit and also is totally new to me. So yeah, Rob, there's just, I, I, I don't feel qualified to answer that question in, in all honesty. Um, <laughs> my, my only advice is, is a rehash of stuff you've said, which is, I guess, find something worth investing in and, What's so interesting about what I've heard of your story thus far is you seem almost, I'll just phrase this in a sort of an overstated way, you seem powerless to resist going into these situations of uncertainty and figuring things out. Like that seems to drive you. Am I, do you think I'm seeing that right? I don't get pulled in by every situation. Okay. You do uh, have, you, know, you have some ability to resist. <laughs> there's plenty of problems that are other people's problems, but, and it was tough, man. I, I've I've had I've wanted to build products for authors for they've been I've had diagrams in my notebooks for at least a decade of software of tools of things I could build for for authors because it was always a customer segment that that I, I resonated with me. It's like I, I I love authors. I wanted to be an author even before I was. I I, I could see the problems after I did it, but I I, I couldn't crack the business model right. Like the big publishers have this entrenched monopoly. They've got mm. pretty serious moats. They've got all this stuff. Authors are super hard to market to because they typically do it like once mm. uh, where they're open to solutions. And then after that, if they write another book, they're like, yeah, I've done it before. I know how to do it. And they're, mm. they're like closed off. Yeah. You're an exception, right? Like yeah. you're, you're super open. You're always looking to, you know, improve and, and, and find new ideas, which is super cool. But I was like, man, I love this market, but the, the business model makes no sense and the marketing feels impossible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just sat on it for 10 years and mm -hmm. until like eventually the pieces clicked together. I think I have some ability to resist, but yeah, once I get into <laughs> it, I'm, I'm a mess. And like uh, Teresa, um, who, who you know and, and who I, I live with, uh, she told me recently, which really startled me. She goes, I don't think there's been a month that I can remember where you haven't spent at least a week miserable. And it's not because anything bad is happening to me. It's just because I, I, I'm going like insane about some sort of like edge case, you know, problem in my creative world that honestly, I don't even need to be dealing with. But yeah, once, once it gets, once it gets its claws into me, I, I just like, I got, I got to see it through. I, you know, that's probably a good way to summarize some of what we've said. That's the cost of caring, and caring, I think, is, uh, I mean, it just sounds like, it, I, I want to start laughing at myself halfway through that sentence, but caring <laughs> is such a vital part of building a business that involves humans. Rob, I want to leave you a few minutes before your next call. I have rarely felt 
physical pain the way I do now at ending a conversation, but there we go. Where can folks find out more <laughs> about your work? Uh, it's all at robfitz.com. Uh, that has links to everything and writeusefulbooks.com. And especially the community is my current uh, passion project. You know, that's what I'm spending my next uh, decade on. Uh, really trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, help indie authors get all the benefit they would have gotten from a publisher or a book coach. So, you know, if you've ever wanted to write a nonfiction book, you know, for your, you know, level up your career or just put your knowledge out into the world, uh, we, we would love to have you.